The Mortification of the Flesh, Chapter 4. Comfort and reassurance applied to the tender-hearted and perplexed believer. I come now to handle the fourth query, which is this. Question number four. What are the mistakes that men run into concerning this great work of mortification? Answer. There are two mistakes men are apt to fall into. Number one. A mistake on the right hand, in which doubting and perplexed Christians are persuaded that their corruptions are not mortified, when indeed they are. Number two. A mistake on the left hand, in which presumptuous sinners imagine that their corruptions are mortified, when indeed they are not. And this will be covered more in chapters 5 through 6. In this chapter, I shall address the first of these, the mistake that doubting and perplexed Christians run into by concluding that their sins are not mortified, when in reality they are. And in pursuit of this, I will show you three cases that make God's people think their hearts are unmortified. Case number one. Oh, says a poor soul, I think my heart is not mortified because of the strong stirrings of sin in my heart, and this makes me fear that my corruptions are yet unmortified. Well, here's a solution. Now, to remedy this mistake, I have only these seven words to say to you. To those who fear that corruptions are not mortified because you see the motions and stirrings of sin within you. Number one, consider whether these motions of sin arise from the devil or from your own heart. Now, if these instigations to sin proceed from the devil's malice and envy against your soul, then you have no cause to fear, for these stirrings and motions to sin in your soul still argue that your sins are mortified. Christ himself had strong motions and temptations to sin, and not to small sins, but to the sins of distrust covetousness, and self-murder. For he was allured by the glory of the world and to break his own neck. Therefore, though you are often pestered and troubled by the devil, and he is always at your heels with one temptation after another, and if you can truly say these stirrings and motions to sin arise from Satan, and do not proceed from the desires of your own heart, I assure you that these are the devil's sins, and not yours. The Lord will charge them to his account, not yours. In some cases, temptations to sin are not evidence of corruption in the person being tempted, but rather in the devil who is tempting him. Number two, suppose these motions and stirrings in your heart do not arise merely from Satan's injections, but also from your own heart, which is like the sea, casting forth nothing but mire and dirt. 
Suppose your heart is like a cage for every unclean bird, and a den in which every unclean beast lies down. Suppose that the breathings of your heart are like the reeking of a dunghill that casts forth an evil and putrid stench. Yet, if you do not yield with ready and willing consent to these motions to sin, and instead you're resisting and opposing them, then these sins will never damn you. If your heart does not engage these sins, it is not evidence that you are unmortified, but rather testimony to the contrary. God will never damn you for that which you oppose and plead with him to cast out. You may die running away from or yielding to the devil, but you shall never die fighting with him. Number three, the stirrings and workings of corruptions in your heart do not necessarily argue that your corruptions have more strength and life in them than they did before, but that you have more light to discover and discern them than you did previously. Well, before his conversion, Paul thought himself blameless according to the law. But afterward, quote, when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died, close quote, Romans chapter 7, verse 9. And to Paul, sin appears to have a greater power in his heart after conversion, not before he has more sin than before, but rather because now he perceives sin which he previously did not. A godly man that has a work of conversion newly wrought upon his heart, though he has a spiritual insight into his own heart, yet at first he only sees gross and egregious evils. For it must be a very expert Christian that can discern inward and secret evils and smaller sins. Hallelujah. Many men, long after conversion, see more sin in their hearts than they ever did before or at the time of their conversion. Now, such men do not have an increase in sin, but rather an increase in illumination. We cannot see the dust and debris in the air on a cloudy day, but only when the sun is shining brightly. Therefore, take comfort in knowing that the motions and stirrings of sin in your heart do not always arise from the increase of strength and life in sin, but instead from the increase of light that God puts into your soul. Number four, the stirrings of sin in your heart do not necessarily argue your corruptions to be unmortified, but your conscience to be more tender than it was before. For example, Suppose you have cut your finger. When it is wounded, anything that touches it troubles you. But before it was cut, you could touch your finger to anything 
and never take notice of it. It would neither hurt nor trouble you. Now, it does not follow that since you cut your finger, you touch it more often to things than before it was cut, though this may seem to be the case, because you're now more sensitive and aware of everything it touches. And so it is in this case. Your conscience is now enlightened, and you are more perceptive of the least sin than you were before. Number five, you should not judge yourself as being unmortified if you occasionally have stirrings of corruption when your soul encounters extraordinary and violent temptations. Though a corruption is sometimes let loose upon you by some violent temptation, yet you're not to evaluate your mortification by this. Instead, judge yourself rather by the usual disposition of your heart under ordinary circumstances. It is customary for your heart to be like a cage of unclean birds, or like the sea, which continually casts forth dirt and mire. If so, then you have cause to fear that sin is still unmortified in your heart. If you were asked to survey a river, you would not report your conclusions of its depth and breadth after a great rain or a flood, but would seek to judge it by its most ordinary course, in other words, like it is normally, when it runs in its own channel. Well, the same is true here. You should not judge the mortification of your corruptions after some violent temptation has created extraordinary stirrings of sin in your soul, but rather by the ordinary frame and temper of your heart. Number six, in some cases, the inward stirring of sin is greater evidence that sin is defeated than you are being void of mortification. And if you will follow me with your thoughts just a little, I will show you three cases in which the working of sin in your heart argues sin to be overthrown and not unmortified. Letter A. In the case of an increased working of sin, this serves to make you more watchful against all occasions of sin and against the first rising of sin in your heart. As a wanton eye is the glance of a lustful heart, so a watchful eye is evidence of a mortified heart. Letter B. In the case of the irritation of sin, well, this moves you to repent for and resolve against those sins with strong prayers of supplication unto God for the strength to subdue them. And such a frame of heart argues the strength of grace, not sin. Let her see. In the case of violent stirrings of sin in your soul, well, afterward, your corruptions grow weaker and more feeble every day. Perhaps the stirring of lust, pride, 
or anger is very great and unruly in your heart, and that you bemoan it, praying and striving against it, and yet cannot keep it subdued. Yet in a little while, you perceive these stirrings of sin to have spent themselves and caused themselves to lose their strength, growing weaker and weaker. In this case, you have no need to fear that your sin is unmortified. And I can verify that 1,000%. It does really work this way. As I told you before, the stirring of sin in some men is like a man sick with a fever. When he is in the heat of his disease and a violent fit comes upon him, the poor sick man will so rage and tumble that three or four men are hardly able to keep him in his bed. Now this does not proceed from the strength of the man, but rather it is a product of the disease. For as soon as the fit is over, the man is so weak that there's scarcely any life left in him. He becomes quite unable to stir or move himself. And so also, when sin is in your soul, like a burning fever upon a man, so that no exhortations, reproofs, or threatenings can restrain or withhold you from sin, and from running after the gratification of the lusts and desires of your heart, yet... If you find that after these violent motions to sin, your corruptions have been weakened and enfeebled, you have a reason to bless God, for he has begun this work of mortification in your heart and has given Satan an irrecoverable blow. Number seven, the stirrings of sin in your heart may be so ordered by God as to make them a means of engaging you to a more thorough mortification of your sins. This is true as well. If sin did not stir in your soul, but lie still and quiet, well, perhaps you would be apt to grow careless and self-confident not taking notice of the sinfulness which remains in your heart. But when the stinking savor and noxious stench of your lusts rise up in your heart, well, this may become a means of encouraging and enlivening your endeavors toward the mortification, subduing, and rooting out of these corruptions from within you. And thus I have finished describing these seven words of comfort to those who complain that their lusts are unmortified because they see the stirring of sin in their hearts. Now I will move on to the second mistake, which makes a godly soul fear that his heart is unmortified. Case number two. Oh, says another godly man, I have not only the stirrings of sin in my heart, but 
the Lord show mercy to my soul, but I am in a worse condition a thousand times over. For I find that I have prayed often, again and again, and have bent all my endeavors against a particular corruption. And yet, notwithstanding all my prayers and endeavors, sighs and groans, that very sin has gained ground in me and prevailed over me, which could not mean anything except that well, sin is unmortified and prevails over my heart. I think I hear such utterances as these coming from a godly soul. Oh, woe is me! I have made many prayers, and repeatedly resolved in my heart to keep out this sin. And yet I cannot, for this sin abounds and triumphs over me, and I am not able to overcome it. And this makes me fear that I may never have had the power of mortifying grace upon my heart. Now, the solution. Beloved, your condition is very sad, but I have four words of comfort for you. Number one, perhaps the evils you complain of that you cannot seem to overcome are great and gross sins, yet inward and unavoidable. And if so, you have less cause to suspect that your corruptions are unmortified. Indeed, if the sins you complain of are great and scandalous sins, then you have cause to fear. But if they are inward and unavoidable corruptions, such as vain thoughts, distempered anger, spiritual pride, vain glory, or the like, you may make 1,000 prayers against these inward corruptions and yet never be able to completely overcome and root them out. Number two, suppose the corruptions that you have prayed and purposed against are great and scandalous sins, and yet you cannot subdue and overcome them. Yet, know this for your comfort, that this is as much as God requires of you, to resolve against them and resist, laboring to withstand your corruptions. And if you make this your duty, though you are overcome, God will not condemn you for it. And this is similar to the case in the law that God made concerning a virgin in Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 through 27. That if a damsel was walking in the field alone, and a lustful man met her and lay with her, only the man would die. They were not to punish the damsel, for he found her in the field. The damsel cried out, and yet there was no one to help her. Beloved, the same is true in this case. The devil may rape you spiritually by forcing a temptation upon you that you have little choice but to yield. But 
if both before and after the commission of sin, you bewail it, hate it, detest it, and strive against it, the Lord will lay the guilt for that sin at Satan's feet, not yours. Number three. To those who suppose their corruptions are unmortified, having prayed often against them, yet without seeing them subdued, will you take this for your comfort? Your praying and purposing against sin are undeniable evidence that these sins are dying, though at the present they may not appear so. If your corruptions were alive and well, your heart would be dead, unfit, and unable to pray. For if your praying does not make you leave sinning, your sinning will make you leave praying. If you are continually striving and praying against sin, it is a strong argument that your corruptions are dying though they are not yet dead, even as some birds flutter furiously after their heads are pulled off. They are undeniably dying, though not quite dead. So, when you find such violent motions and stirrings of sin within yourself, despite all your prayers and endeavors to the contrary, yet you may be sure that your corruptions are dying though not quite dead. Number four, take this also for your comfort, that although your corruptions may have been dealt a mortal wound in general, yet for the moment a particular lust may be very vigorous, lively, and active in your soul. Theologians tell us that even as all corruptions are not equally lively in a man, and so neither are all corruptions equally dead in a man. And here is your comfort. If you can see that a general work of mortification is being wrought in you, that the body of sin has been destroyed, though you have some particular corruptions still remaining in you, this does not argue that your sin is unmortified. And this is like a dying man with a dead limb. His heart still has life for the moment, but the man cannot live much longer if he has a dead limb. And so too, if one sin is dead, it shows that the whole body of sin is dying, even though for the moment some particular lust may prevail in your heart. The general work of mortification has been wrought within you, notwithstanding some particular sins that are not yet entirely subdued. Case number three. Another mistake that a godly man runs into is this. Oh, it is true, says a poor soul, that I have cause to fear upon the two grounds just mentioned. But alas, it is not only the stirring of sin in my heart, 
and that I often fall into sin after prayers, promises, and resolutions against them, but that which makes me fear my corruptions are unmortified is this, that if corruptions were dying in me, I would expect to find grace more livening and active within me than I do. Grace should counterbalance sin in such a way that as one decreases, the other increases. Now, because I cannot see that grace is alive and working in my soul, I conclude that sin is not yet dead within me. Well, here's a solution. To you who make this complaint, I have three words of comfort. Number one, remember that the whole work of grace in sanctifying you is not done all at once. Indeed, you are elected and justified all at once, but you are not sanctified all at once. You must not expect the whole work of sanctification to be wrought in a moment. As a child matures into adulthood, gradually and by degrees, not instantaneously, well, so does also the work of sanctification proceed gradually and by degrees. Number two. Your common gifts may die and decay while there is yet a quick and lively working of true and saving grace in your soul. Common gifts may wane while true grace is very vigorous in your soul. Perhaps in your old age you have lost the fluency of tongue, the readiness of utterance, or strength of memory things that you excelled in during your younger years. Well, although these gifts are in decline, yet there may be a lively and vigorous growth of grace in your soul. As one theologian observes, a young musician can often play better upon an instrument, or sing more harmoniously, making a more pleasant melody than when he is older. But the same musician has more experience and judgment in music when he is older. And so it may be that you have lost the varnish and flourish of your graces, yet have grown more in wisdom, understanding, and discernment than ever before. Number three. You who complain and fear that your corruptions are not dead because grace is not so lively and active within you, know this for your comfort, that God ordinarily gives a greater provision of vivacity and quickness of grace at a man's first conversion than he ever gives afterward, perhaps because it attracts men to religion and the practice of godliness. And now we come to the discussion and a personal reflection portion of the chapter. Number one, which mistake do you encounter more frequently? 
the tendency to think your sins are mortified when in reality they are not, or the tendency to believe that your sins are not mortified when indeed they are. Why do you think this is so? Number two, why are the stirrings of sin in the soul not a reliable indicator of one's state of mortification? Number three, what counsel does the author provide for the tender-hearted Christian who believes sin is gaining ground despite his best efforts to mortify it? Is there another possible explanation that the author has not yet addressed? Number four, how does being unable to see any significant growth in grace relate to the sense that one has not adequately mortified his corruptions. What advice does the author give regarding this?